It's been a full 11 years since I've actually got a chance to talk to this group. Uh, about 11 years ago, I came and spoke to Amen. And at that time, I had not been exposed to so many people at the same time and in the same place that were interested in using their medical practices, their, their dental practices, their practice of health care to complete the Gospel Commission. Before that, I, I, well, let me just say that I felt so good when I, when I stood in front of that group of people. I felt amazing. It felt uh, joy just wash over me because I sensed I wasn't alone. That there were yet 7,000 who had refused to bend the knee. And that's what you, that's what you are. You were that to me. Standing in front of that crowd 11 years ago, God received praise in that moment, just as he does right now from me, because you exist. Now, I believe that amen is a sign. Personally, I believe that amen is a sign. A sign of the near coming of Christ. Now, follow my, my reasoning here. We know that the last work to be done in missionary lines is the medical missionary work. And if you don't find a bunch of medical missionaries out there, how close are we to the end? But just like prior to Christ's first advent, as you see a, the world coming into, into focus to prepare the way for Christ, as you start to see medical missionaries rising up and organizations and, and people organizing themselves around medical missionary work rising up out of the grassroots, just like God prepared the world for Christ's first event, God is preparing the world for his second advent. And because of that, you are a sign of Christ's near coming. How close are we to the end right now? I want to give you five principles today of radical medical ministry that will transform your lives, your practice. This is not from any book. This is from simply the book of my experience. So you can take it or leave it. I won't be offended. But I'll tell you, this is what I have learned and I want to share it with you today. The first principle that I'm going to share with you is to love radically. You see, being here, like I said, from 11 years ago, makes me think of my, my dear friend, Roger Ferguson. Roger came with me and helped me at my presentation 11 years ago. Now, Roger was a patient of mine. And Roger was this gentle man, a kind and loving and, and sincere person. He was the, the kind of person you'd like to be around because he's so quiet and unassuming and careful of other people. And... Um, the way he took care of people made you just feel included. But I'm going to tell you a little bit of secret about Roger and I. In our first conversation in my office, Roger came at me like a she-bear. His finger was in my face. I don't like doctors, he said as he stood over me. I don't like doctors, and you are one. Give me my prescription, and I'm out of here. I'll be out of your face. Whoa, 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 whoa. Talk about intimidating. Here I go. He's a six foot four, 240 pound university professor of engineering. And this guy's leaning over the table with his finger in my face, telling me how he doesn't like me and he never met me before. But you know what? Roger, in time, became my friend. I got to know Roger. 
And I realized that this in-your-face guy was not that same kind of guy. He was indeed a she-bear. You see, this guy was powerful and radical in his love. And what had happened is he radically loved his wife. And his wife had cancer that had taken over her body and would one day take her life. And in the process of her illness, her interactions with physicians were so poor and so degrading and so dehumanizing to her. She had been treated so rudely that Roger, who loved his wife radically, came at anything that looked like it might get in her way like a she-bear. And that's what radical love will do. Roger was a protector He was a protector of women. He was a protector of children. He was a protector of the handicapped. He was a protector of the disenfranchised. Anytime any of that entered the room, they had Roger watching them. Because Roger loved that kind of person radically. And he would transform into anything he needed to be in order to love these people completely. Well, you know, it made him step out of his comfort zone because that wasn't his natural inclination to be up in your face. He could do it, but it wasn't his comfort zone. But you see, desperate people will do radical things. And Roger was desperate to love his wife. Through a series of events, Roger became my friend, and truly he became my best friend. You see, although we were decades different in age, Roger was a kindred spirit, Roger not only became my best friend over time, but because his radical love was so respected by me, because I grew to love and respect Roger so much, and the way he was sacrificial, like Jesus was sacrificial, that I grew to respect him and love him, and he actually became the godfather of my children. To the point where he was there when my kids were born. This is a guy that stood in my face. I had no knowledge of him before we got to know each other in the clinic. And now he is helping me in my home. That was Roger. That's what radical, total commitment and love will do for you. So, 11 years ago, Roger gave his testimony. Sometimes I go to the audioverse just to listen to his voice again because he's died since. He's looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. He will look into the face of another one who loved him radically. John 4, 1 John 4, 7 said, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is of God. And catch the word, everyone who loves. Now I'm going to put some parentheses around that. Like Jesus loves. Sacrificially. Radically completely giving of themselves like Jesus did. Everyone who loves like that is born of God and knows God. Roger loved radically, sacrificially like Jesus loved. And in that statement, you will find the first principle of radical medical practice. It is in itself a radical concept. To love people so much that they invade your life. That's nuts. You need to love so radically 
self-sacrificially just like Jesus did. Because Jesus wanted to invade our lives. You see, this whole concept of loving radically leads to several things down the line. For one thing, when you are in medical ministry, you don't lead by authority. You need to know this. This is, this is key. You don't lead by authority. You lead by influence. You see, in medicine, it's all hierarchical, you know. It's, you know, uh, uh, everybody has its place in the hierarchy. But in medical ministry, we're all on the same playing field. I don't care whether you're the doctor, the nurse, the janitor. Influence, then, in that kind of scenario is not assumed. It is developed. And the way that that, that happens, it can make things awkward for you if you go into things, things assuming authority in front of people that are seeing you as a minister. It can kind of lead to the, to the following circumstance where you have a staff member who refuses a medical order because they didn't feel like it. You know what? That happened. And it happened because somebody took authority when they should have taken influence. And if you're going to do medical ministry, you need to know that that's the kind of thing that's going to happen. You need to know that you're on the same playing field as other people. And they'll see it as a power vacuum, but it is not. You have authority. But they'll see it as that, and they're not used to it. And they'll pursue that as if they're going to take authority, because you didn't take authority. You abdicated. You didn't abdicate. You just simply led by influence. And so if that's the case... How much influence did that person have there? Not much. And it was a learning point. It applies to working with our brethren in the church and in the ministry as well. You see, we may feel like many people that I have talked to in the healthcare fields. Why do I need them anyway? I mean, I got the whole package. I mean, I can do medicine and ministry even better than they can. You tell me, you wonder, you wonder why they wonder about our commitment to the church and to ministry when we act like that. We're equals in ministry and with our brethren. And we lead by influence, not by authority. We're not going to tell them the way it is. You see, you want to know how to have influence? You want to know how you lead in that kind of circumstance? The way you do that is you recognize the person who has the most to lose and gives it up sacrificially has the most influence. If they have the most to lose and they give it away freely, those people that are the most sacrificial carry the most influence. And you in the healthcare fields are set up to lead if you will sacrifice like that. You want to have influence, you'll need to sacrifice. And not only will you need to sacrifice, but you're going to need to love radically the people, not just your patients, but the people you take care of the patients with. You need to take care of them. And I'm not just talking about your staff. I'm talking about your ministry brethren. And it does go beyond that. It goes to your own family. You see, if you want to lead in ministry, you need to have influence. And if you're going to have influence, the way you develop it, is through sacrifice. Because you've got the most to lose. And you gave it away freely. 
And therefore, you carried influence. It might be uh, kind of radical to think like that. Kind of nuts. But you know, it's easier on our egos probably to deal with our patients radically than it is even our own brethren in the ministry. It's easier to deal with our own patients because it's so clear that we are above them. But when we go side by side with our brethren in the ministry, it is not clear. And you see, if you, you want to address them closely and have influence on them, you need to love radically like that. Loving radically will take you out of your professional reserve. It will remove you from your disconnected distance that you're perceived by, either with the patients or our brethren in the ministry. It will alter our preoccupation with production. And it will make us leave our comfort zones and regarding patients and our ministry partners. Radical love will place us into relationships and circumstances that we never thought were possible. To have a radical practice, you need to do like Roger did. You need to love radically. Principle number two. It's often those who are not afraid to die that win. Something else I learned in my life. I learned that when you're desperate, you're going to do radical things. Now, I've not been an Adventist all my life. When I was a kid, I lived a pretty violent life up in San Jose, California. Just to quickly describe that, uh, my four brothers and I were once surrounded by about 20 kids and beat Another time I end up with a fillet of the lower lip from this point to this point, which I still carry a scar for when my teeth went through my face. Another time I had my nose broken and blood from here to here and down to my waist. And unfortunately, in that altercation, it was all mine. You see, so I lived a pretty radical life in the sense that I was just getting beat up. Now, I could handle myself in an even circumstance, but it wasn't always that way. And those are the times I feared the worst. So, I learned that when you're desperate, you'll do radical things. So, I remember jumping over the fence one day on this culvert, this, this wash culvert. It had about, uh, you know, those concrete things that go straight down. It was about 10 or 12 feet deep, and it had a rocky bottom. And there's this big clear area, you know, it fenced chain link against the houses that had their backs towards this culvert. And it was just this long thoroughfare, which was a great shortcut between, between uh, uh, different uh, neighborhoods. And my buddy Jimmy and I, we jumped the fence one time, and we're, we're about halfway through this culvert area, walking right next to this deep culvert, this 10 or 12 feet. I bet you I was 14 at the time. And some guys were coming the other direction. And my buddy Jimmy, he looked, and he goes something like this. Dude, you know those guys. They hate your guts. They're going to kill you. That was Jimmy. Jimmy had a way of really encouraging me in those difficult circumstances. (laughs) All right, so as they got closer, as they got closer and they recognized who I was, and so I can see, oh, man, these guys see who I am. And I said, oh, man. Well, Jimmy, if I have to fight, at least there's two of us. And Jimmy, he got this shocked look on his face. He, go, he looks at me and he goes, there were two of us. And he backs way up. 
Now, oh, man. And now there's one of me against two guys that are bigger than I am and that hate my guts. And going through my mind are these scenarios of my past where I did not fare so well. And I'm thinking, I am just really up against it now. This is the end. As they got closer and closer, they, and they were smiling real big, and they got close enough to, to talk to me, they said, Ah, oh, Turquato, so very nice to see you out here, so far from anyone that could help you. What a terrible thing. And they began to use expletives to explain how they were going to mess me up. And as they came closer and closer, they were about ready to lurch forward. And I put my hand up and said, hold on, guys. Hold on. I just want to say this. I know that both of you, either one of you, could do everything you have said about the way you're going to mess me up. You and I both know it. But I made a decision today. I'm standing next to this culvert. And as soon as one of the two of you gets close to me, I'm going to take you by the throat and the two of us are going down there and I'm going to end up on top. So come on, let's get this done. And they just stood there. And the loud guy said to the big guy, come on, let's go get him. And the big guy said, oh, wait a minute. Not so fast. And the loud guy said, no, 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 I'm serious. Come on, let's go get him. There's only one of him. He said, I'm not going in there, man. What, are you afraid, you chicken? He said, I said, I'm not going. And they started to fight back and forth. And then very slowly, they began to inch around me, way on the far side of the culvert, until they were all the way past me as I faced them as I turned. And they got to the other side. They used some expletives, and off they walked. Unfortunately, Jimmy was in their pathway. He did not fare well. My point is this. Desperate people will do radical things. And it's often the one who is not afraid to die that wins. I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson before I knew the gospel. But then when I learned about the gospel, I recognized later that it was the same risk that our Savior took. That he was willing to die to risk it all in a battle to the death. But in the process, he won our salvation. Now, when I became a Christian, I had a whole new area to apply this to. You see, I had to learn how to apply it to dying to self. You see, when you're desperate, you can do radical things. And it might even include dying to self. So let's get an application. Here's an application for medicine. I'm going to say something that you need to understand very clearly and be able to express yourself. That medical ministry is not the gospel. It does not take the place of the gospel. It is a part of the gospel. And there is a gospel of health, which means we're part of it. We're the right arm. But medical ministry does not replace the gospel. Our benevolent acts... Do not take the place of helping people know Jesus. And that's a place where we as providers need to learn to die to self. Because we want to be in charge. When it comes to our ministry brethren. It's amen. Remember I said I had the whole package. You're going to do my way. But we are not the head. We are the arm. Now some people will try to 
pursue medical ministry in a benevolent fashion in a way that excludes the gospel. But I would like you to know that separated from the gospel, medical ministry is not a Seventh-day Adventist endeavor. So let's get another application to this concept. It is often those who are not afraid to die that win. We have a saying in my office. We cannot be so concerned about our own survival, personally or as an organization, that we neglect to do that which is right. And it has led us many times through the pathways that are difficult as we practice medicine. We've learned to alter the practice of medicine to meet missionary goals. Because we were not afraid to do that which was right, even if it meant a risk to our own survival. We changed the practice of medicine to meet mission goals. We have to die to our own plans, our own lives even. We have to choose to live the life of the cross as physicians in business. What kind of nuts is that? And even in our own professional lives, I mean, how many of us know of the circumstance of a medical missionary who in their own scenario, in their own area of comfort, they become king? That doesn't go when you are working for influence. So we need to put aside things like our personal plans and be willing to sacrifice for the Lord in ways that we did not consider before, even death. We're talking physical death, financial death, organizational death. Am I talking crazy? This is nuts. Who talks about being willing to die as an organization in order to accomplish the mission of the church? That doesn't make any sense, right? I've got news for you. The Lord can work with or without an organization. But he can't work with somebody who will not give themselves fully to him. So the thought may cause some people to freak out a little bit. But I need to tell you something. Desperate people will do radical things. And if you are desperate to love people for Jesus, you need to know that if you allow yourself to be afraid to die in any of those ways, you will go nowhere. It is time to count the cost of discipleship now. And being afraid to die is one of them. One of those costs. Jesus told the rich young ruler to go and sell all that he had. Everything. And you know, for us, that might include not just our things or our finances. It might include our ego. It might include our, our influence. It might include our expectation of what the future should hold for us. To sell all that he had and then give it to the poor And come follow me. That ruler went away sad. So what about us? John 12, 24 through 26. Most assuredly I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It remains alone. In other words. You're not taking anybody with you. I mean if you want to go there. You're not taking anybody with you. If you don't die. It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where did he go? On the cross. 
Let him follow me, that where I am, there my servant will be also. But if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. The second principle is this. It's often the one who is not afraid to die that wins. Talking radical practice now. Know your purpose. My dad used to tell me it this way. He said, you know, hey, John, if you don't know where you're going, how are you ever going to know when you got there? You know? So what's our goal? What is the outcome that we're looking for? Is it great medical outcomes we're trying to achieve? Or is it completing the gospel commission? You know, you see, great medical outcomes are a natural part of completing the gospel commission. But that is not the goal. So here's my journey. I start off, I'm in medicine, I decide to do family practice. I'm like, great, family practice, preventive care. He that knows to do right and does it not to him, it is sin. Well, you know what? I know to do right. There's lots of data out there that says if I simply do preventive care, I'm going to help people live. Christ said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm doing it, right? I'm doing the mission, preventive care. But I realized right away, I'm making a lot of healthy sinners that are going to burn because they don't even know about Jesus. Scratch my head. Go back to the drawing board. Oh, then I thought, natural remedies. I'm going to do natural remedies because then I'm cooperating with the natural remedies of God, you know. And I can even do trust in divine power and that really hits a, a, a nerve for people, you know. But then I realized that you could be a new age believer and they would love me and never be challenged with Jesus. Because divine power to them is inside. So you could be a new age believer and, and still do natural remedies. and Everybody's great with that. So I came to this thing about whole person care. Now this is subtle. Because I thought, hey, this is it. This is it. You know, I got it now because I'm doing whole person care. Every presentation I ever saw on whole person care, every PowerPoint that I ever saw on whole person care throughout medical school, residency training, and etc., ended with outcomes. Less patient days. We ended up with less medical expenditures. We ended up with, you know, improved financial, you know, bottom line. And I, and I was really cool with that because I was thinking, man, I'm doing whole person care, so I'm doing it. But I realized something. I got a problem with that. You see, it's all great, but there's a subtle problem. And that is, that whole purpose is me using the spirit of God and spiritual things to make great outcomes. Do you get that? Me, who's in control? Using spiritual things, what am I using to get great outcomes? Who's the goal for? Instead of God, who's in control, using great outcomes, what's the method? To help them, people, know about Jesus. What's the goal? It's actually in total reverse of the direction that I meant to go. And it was subtle, and I thought I had it, but I didn't. I was doing whole person care without the recognition that in the end, these people didn't know Jesus. So what's the outcome? Now, natural, naturally, you want good outcomes. And it is part of doing good medical care. But that's not the goal. 
And the thing is, I'm not supposed to be in control. And I'm not supposed to use the power of God in order to get my outcomes. In fact, there's a story in the New Testament about one who wanted to use God's power, and it didn't, you know, he wanted to use God's power for his own benefit. It did not go well for him. So the third principle, know your purpose. And don't be subtly misled. So, the fourth and the fifth principle I'm going to tell you about together. And the fourth and the fifth principle I'm going to tell you in advance. Um, I've got a couple slides here. This is a medical environment, so some of these slides are graphic. I'm going to come up to the, to the slide. It's a case study. In fact, it's a case study where the patient himself helped to present it to a large crowd. And he's given me permission to share his case study. Um, so I'm going to share this with you. When I get to the parts that are kind of grody, uh, that are kind of uh, graphic, uh, I'm going to tell you, and you can shut your eyes if you want, and I'm going to blast through them. Okay? So just to let you know. All right. So I'm going to illustrate this fourth and fifth principle through um, this case study. So here I have uh, a gentleman who ended up, uh, he was a diabetic, 71-year-old gentleman who came into uh, to the emergency room with a diabetic foot ulcer that had been present for a week, and it was already August 13. So you're talking about like August 7-ish, where you had this problem. And so after that, uh, the next day, they did an x-ray, and they saw some possible osteomyelitis. And after the um, x-ray, they... Um, they did a CT angio, and they identified high-grade stenosis of the left, left um, posterior tibial artery. And on the 15th, they amputated this great toe. There was no save in it. They decided they're going to have to take it out. And so that's what happened. And this one's not so bad, but I, so I'm going to linger on it just a second so you can see it. But, so th- this is just a wound back, and his toe is better. You know, he's, he's, it's gone, right? So um, now... What happened is on the 23rd, now remember, he started having this illness on the 7th and he was trying to heal it from the 7th. He got to the medical care on the 13th. And now, here he is on the 23rd in the first wound of the uh, foot uh, where they had taken off that amputation, begins to look necrotic. And the second toe looks dark and diminished perfusion. And the question is about viability. And I have here in front of you the report. They're talking about whether or not it's even viable. And those of you who are surgeons know where this is headed. You know, we're going higher. That's right. That's what's going on next. So the next thing we have is that one. All right. So I just blasted past it so that you guys can see it quick. Sorry, I didn't warn you so fast. I'll have to remember next time. September 21st. So this is over a month and a half after the first wound was initially noted by the patient. They had a recommendation. They had worked with it, worked with it, worked with it. They had a recommendation to remove the second non-viable toe and consider chopart amputation. Second toe. This is what his glucose looked like, 247. Now this guy has three doctors on the case. He has a general surgeon who's doing vascular surgery. He has an, an infectious disease specialist. And he has an internal medicine physician who specializes in all those hard cases. And they are working with a team that includes a dietitian and with the patient. And they all have the radar up. And they're trying to get his sugars down so they can supply this foot with some perfusion and save that foot. He's 247. is the best he could do. And so now we end up with what looks like a uh, need for further 
uh, amputation, the second toe amputation, and possible transmetatarsal foot amputation. Where are we headed? Higher. We're going up. Okay, so did the second toe, and what did we end up with? We end up with surgical margin that's focally necrotic. Where is it headed? So then we have this. Second toe amputation, possible uh, foot amputation. They took the patient and they put him in the ICU because he couldn't get his sugars down. And in a last desperate attempt to get him a good start, they put him on an insulin drip to get his sugars down so they could figure out maybe I can keep him there. All right, if you're interested, you can close your eyes. I'm going to blast through it. So there we are, second foot. His hemoglobin A1C, the best he can do is 7.4. Now, if you look here, November 29. Now, remember, it was August 7-ish. We went through August 7 to um, September 7 to October 7. And now we're November 29. And now they're talking about a third toe amputation, possible foot amputation, and discuss possible future below-the-knee amputation. Where is this going? Now, how long has it been? You've got August, all of August to September, all of September to October, all of October to November, and half of November. We've got now three and a half months of this guy struggling to save his foot with all the medical providers doing the best the medicine has to offer. And what we end up with is full thickness epidermal necrosis, margins that were viable at the time, demonstrated chronic osteomyelitis in the part they just took off because they just took off the third toe. They just went up. So now here's the rest of the story. That's when I got to know the patient. He shows up in my office and he gives me the story that I just shared with you. And I'm scratching my head and I'm asking, All right, can I just ask you a question? He said, what's that? Why are you here? He says, I was referred to you by the surgeon. What are you talking about? I refer to surgeons. Surgeons don't refer to me. <laughs> and he says, well, Dr. Johnson, he said he thought you knew something that, you know, he'd been hearing about stuff that you've been doing. He says, I, I, to give it a trial. And honestly, Doc, I have no other options. The knee is coming off. If I don't get this done, I can't work on my tractor if I don't get this done as a real estate officer, I'm going to have to find a prosthesis to show my homes. If I don't get this done, I'm going to have grandchildren that I cannot run and play with like I have. I need this, whatever you have to offer. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I have to offer? He says, I have no other choice. So I said, all right, let me just get a question here in. What are you willing to do to make the difference? And he used that word, anything. I love the word anything. I love the word. In fact, Jesus, I believe, loves the word anything. He says, I'll do anything, Doc. So I'm scratching my head. Okay, well, let me just at least go through your paperwork. So I go through my paperwork. I go all this history, and I'm going through the history part. And I have this form I made. It has to do with things that Ellen White talks about. She says, these things build up your life, and these things tear down your life. You might be familiar with the statement. I don't remember where I found it. But I've got a little form I built out of it. And they grade themselves on a scale of 1 to 7. And, and all the good things he was really good, and all the bad things he was, you know, there was really low, except one thing. He came to guilt. Guilt. 
So what's this about? And he said, like, oh, it's probably nothing. I said, well, maybe it's nothing. But I kind of need to know, what are you talking about? What is guilt? He says, well, I kind of feel guilty for missing the mark. I said, missing the mark? What are you talking about? He says, well, I'm an elder in my church. And in my church, he wasn't an Adventist. He said, in my church, we believe that the body is the temple of God. <laughs> really? We believe that the body is the temple of God. And I knew for a long time I should have been doing better than I did. And that still small voice had been talking to me and I realized I missed the mark because I feel that all that has happened to me with the, all these surgeries and now I'm going to lose my leg, it's caused by the fact that I did not obey what I knew was right. I should have watched my diet, I should have exercised better, but I was too busy. Because I was too busy, I'm now in this circumstance. And he says, so I feel like I missed the mark. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, so I'm shooting from the hip a little bit. I've never heard somebody talking about missing the mark in the office before. So I'm starting to ask myself, so you're an elder in your church? Yeah. And you said you missed the mark. Yeah. So what does that mean that you missed the mark as an elder? I, I, just to be clear for that. He says, well, what that means is I have sinned. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're in a doctor's office, you realize. I mean, I didn't say that word. You said that word, right? He said, yeah, yeah, I said that word. No, that's what it means. When you miss the mark, it means you have sinned. I had never heard that before from a patient. So I'm shooting from the hip again. I just never heard that before. So I said, okay, let me just kind of play along with this. So you missed the mark. You called it sin. I didn't. You called it sin. So in your church as an elder, if somebody came to your church as an elder and said they missed the mark and it was sin, what would you do as an elder? <laughs> well, I would tell them to confess it before God. And I looked at him sitting next to his wife sitting there in the two chairs. I said, okay. And so? And he goes, I acknowledge that the sin of my lifestyle has caused the disease that's in my body. Jaw dropped. Did you hear the thump? Boom. I have never faced that. Where did that come from? And I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit. Where to go with this? I'm, kinda, I'm really kind of deep in now, right? So, all right. I'm thinking, all right. So you missed the mark. You did the sin thing. You confessed before me and before God that, yes, this was indeed you know, a sin that you acknowledge. So if you were an elder in your church that somebody came that missed the mark and they confessed it was sin, then what? I said, well, in my church, we tell them to repent. Okay. And so? Now, gather this. This has been kind of an uncomfortable circumstance for me. I'm a little bit off my kilter a little bit. I'm not really on center because I've never done this before. And this guy's talking to me like this, like I should be a pastor or something. And I just called him and I said, when he said about this repentance thing, I said, okay. And he just sat there and looked at me for the longest time. And this is not the kind of conversation you have in a doctor's office, right? I mean, this is really kind of anathema when it comes to medicine. And he just looked at me for a long time and looked over at his wife. And he looked at me for a long time and he said to his wife, come on, honey. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> what have they done? <laughs> I just did it. This guy is embarrassed. 
I hurt his feelings. I pushed him too far. This guy is going to get up. He's going to walk out of this place. I will never see him again. My reputation is toast. This is going to be done. And I'll never see this guy again. He stands up with his wife and he gets down on his knees in front of me with his wife. And they give the most sincere repentance prayer that I've ever heard from a person. He repented to God in this confession of sin that acknowledged God's supremacy and asked him to change. And I'm like, my eyes were bugging out. I'm thinking, what in the world just happened to me? I don't even understand what just, what just occurred. So he gets back up in his chair. And I'm kind of flabbergasted. I said, okay, um, <clears throat> now what? So in your church, you know, we had the thing about you know, missing the mark and now sin and then confession and repentance, you know, I mean, uh, and, uh, and repentance. Now what? In your church, what would you tell people to do? He says, well, in my church, we would tell people to turn away. Good, good, I like that. Okay, and so? He says, no, 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 no. Doc, now it's your turn. <laughs> and I'm scratching my head. Okay, okay, you bet. We'll do that. We'll do that. What are we going to do, Doc? He says, we are going to put you through a lifestyle change program that's going to change your diabetes and help you save your foot. <laughs> and he says, that's great, Doc. I'm so excited. Tell me, what's that going to be like? I said, we're going to do a little bit of diet. And he, saw, he seemed visibly, visibly disappointed. He said, Doc, I've done the diet thing. For weeks, for almost four months, I've got the diet thing under control. My, I got a dietitian on the team. We've done the diet thing. I said, well, that's not all. We're going to do some exercise too. No, doc, you don't understand. I have exercised and exercised. And ex-. He says, I have done the exercise. I said, sir, this is going to make a difference. That was on, what was that on? That was on, well, I'll just tell you the rest of the story. That was November 29. On December 5, he came back with a report from his physician. Incision granulating well. No infection. Blood sugars very stable. He came back on the 14th, another week or so later. Healing nicely. Good contraction and granulation no need for skin grafting. Should heal easily. That's two weeks after the day of repentance. I'm going to show you another one that's not so gross. That's his foot. that amazing? You surgeons, you recognize that. That is like beauty to you. <laughs> so check this out. He told me after his last appointment with his surgeon, six weeks after we met, I went and saw Dr. Johnson today, and he stood in the corner of the room as he walked in, and he just stared at my foot on the table, and he had a tear in his eye. And the patient asked him, he said, why are you, what's with the tear? He says, John, I thought I was going to take off your leg, and now I'm sending you home whole. So if you look here, 
It was December 5, the incision was granulating well. December 14, healing nicely. January 11, there was a small scab only, nearly completely healed. He was, by the way, walking two hours a day, and he was ple- the doctor was pleased with his recovery. So it was six weeks of healing. Till after, after that surgery, he had gotten to complete wellness. Not only was he physically healed, but his soul was healed. Now, this is what he looks like at that point. Is that amazing? The Lord healed that. Three and a half months of spiral down. Take it higher. Take it higher. That's his foot. That was amazing. So here's the thing about this, you guys. This is the lesson in this. John had a non-healing diabetic foot ulcer until he repented of his sin. Now I'm convinced it was repentance that saved that diabetic limb. Because everything that he had done prior to that had just gone downhill, downhill, downhill with the best that medicine had to offer. Now I don't know why the Lord gave that, but I think it might have been for this lesson. You see, he had repentance and a determination to change because desperate people will do radical things. And he said, I will do anything. But here's the thing. If I had not allowed the connection between sin and disease to be explored and led in that exploration, in fact, I believe that man would be without a leg today. You see, I could have become the barrier to his healing. And I believe it relied on, his healing relied on the fundamental understanding he had of sin and repentance. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and tell a bunch of people that they're crazy, you know, you know because they're, I mean, I'm not telling you to go crazy and tell a bunch of people that, you know, it's because they sinned, they had all these terrible things that happened. But I believe that there is a connection between sin and disease that we know about, but we are sometimes embarrassed, or if not embarrassed, sometimes we are offended to say it. You see, the principle is that will transform your practice of medicine into a radical practice is to acknowledge the connection between sin and disease. Because there are many Seventh-day Adventist physicians, graduates of my medical school, Loma Linda University, who are offended at the concept. And we must acknowledge this connection between we can, before we can make a radical evangelistic transformation. Otherwise, we become a barrier to the patients trying to know Jesus. And we will never really practice the radical way Jesus did because he always removed sin. He was constantly removing sin. It's a combined clinical and evangelistic approach that makes it radical. And we can do it kindly, correctly, winsomely, gently. But we need to do that in our own lives first. We need to acknowledge it because we become the barrier. And then after we acknowledge that connection between sin and disease, we need to lead the patient to the Savior as the power for change. Those are the two big principles. The two big principles. Acknowledge the connection between sin and disease, otherwise we become a barrier to the patients who already know it. And the second thing is we need to lead our patients to the Savior as a source of power to change. So, I'm going to recap the principles a little bit. There's five of them, because I want to provide for you a little bit of something, a model. So here's five principles. We need to love radically. Be willing to die 
know our target, acknowledge the connection between sin and disease in our own hearts so we don't become a barrier to patients who already know that connection. And we need to lead our patients to the Savior as the power that will transform their lives. So I want to give you a model of medical practice, but before I give you the model of medical practice, I want to lay the foundation with two stories from the Bible. First, I want to talk to you about the story of Balaam. Now, you remember Balaam was in chapter 22 in Numbers, and we're told that King Balak, he was afraid of the Israelites. And so because he was afraid of the Israelites, he called Balaam, who was a prophet of God in a nearby country, and he said, come and curse the people of God. And Balaam was greedy for gain and decided he would take him up on it. I'll come and curse the Israelites so that I can take off the honor, the, 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 the money, and the gold that he was promised. Although he was not allowed to curse the people of God himself... He found a way. He found a way to allow that curse to happen. See, he wanted the gold. He wanted the silver. And he wanted the power and the honor that was going to come with that curse. Isn't that right? So he wasn't just, just you know, uh, going along with things. He was actually willing to see it happen. And so the take-home message is this. He was willing to curse the people of God for a buck. You get my point. All right, so that's the, that's the down-home message. This despicable act of treason against God, this despicable act of treason against God's people was caused by a guy who carried more for the power and the money from his pocket than he did for the people of God himself that he was a prophet for. So I'll just go through the scriptures real right quick in case you're writing them down. 2 Peter 2, 14 and 16, speaking of the false teachers of scripture. This is talking all about Balaam. It says, they have a heart trained for covetous practices. They are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked in his iniquity. Jude one eleven, speaking of the apostates from the church, Jude mentions Balaam. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And then, of course, there's Revelation 2, 12 and 14. 12 14. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Who do you think that is? I know your works and where you dwell. Skipping a little further. I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. What was that doctrine? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Balaam wasn't well looked upon. And the scripture tells us his outcome. If you look at Numbers 31.8. And the kings, uh, they killed the kings of Midian and the rest of those who were killed. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with a sword. You see, Balaam was willing to see the people of God cursed in order to make a buck, but he died fighting the people of God. Now let's look and look on the other side of things. Let's look at Josiah as an example here. So Josiah, you'll find him in 2 Kings 22 and 1 and 2. So it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David, his father. This is good stuff. He didn't turn away to the right or the left. He was trying to restore the temple of God and the worship of God. That was Josiah. He was thought well of by God, and scriptures hold his name high. And he made efforts to restore the kingdom and the temple of God, and the workers in the process of restoring the, the temple 
they discovered the law. Was that amazing? They discovered the law of God. 2 Kings 22.8 says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law. It's funny. It was in the house of the Lord. And Shaphan read it before the king in verses 10 and 11. And now it happened. Catch this. This is what happened when they read the law. The king heard the words of the book of the law and he tore his clothes. You see, Josiah was doing a good thing. And he was trying to honor God. He was restoring the temple of God. Isn't that kind of what you do? And this restoration of the temple of God brought him to where he rediscovered the law of God. And when he read the law he just, he just, that he discovered, he was realizing he wasn't being faithful, nor were his people. Ooh, awkward place. And look at his response. Verse 10, he read the law. Verse 13, he recognized the problem. And he stated, great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. In 11 and 19, it says, His heart was tender, and he humbled himself before God, weeping and tearing his clothes. This was his response. And then in 14, he inquired of God through Huldah the prophetess to know what to do about the circumstance. And then in verse 2 of 23, it says, Once he learned about the truth, he immediately committed himself to keeping the law. So Josiah found the law of God when he was trying to restore the temple. He discovered that he and Israel had come under the wrath of God. Didn't mean to. He wasn't in on the original decision. But it happened to him. And now he was there. And so he could have taken that, well, what more can I do about it? All right, so here's the point. I want to propose a model of medical practice to you. I want to propose a model of practice to you that says this. A model of medical practice that will radically transform your practice into a practice that is crazy for God. Pastors and physician teams working in daily unified cooperation towards evangelistic goals to complete the gospel commission. That is nuts. But that's what God would call us to do. So now I want you to read this. My brethren, the Lord calls for unity. For oneness. We're to be one in the faith. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences. Our conference workers should be interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Do you see the curse that we have been handed down? I mean, I wasn't there in the original decision. It didn't happen when it was on my watch. But somehow this has occurred. And if that is the case, I need to do something about it if I want God to be honored. Because otherwise, I have a choice. I can end up receiving the wages of Balaam. Or I can be known as one like Josiah who restored the temple of God and the worship of God. You know what happened when Josiah began to do all that he knew in his power to do? There was a revival and reformation in the kingdom like never before, and the worship of God had been restored like it had never been before. That is the outcome. And my friends, that's what can be us. We can be Josiah. The alternative 
is we can receive the wages of Balaam. We need to love radically. We need to not be afraid to die. We need to know our target. And we need to acknowledge the connection between sin and disease in our own hearts so we don't become a barrier to our patients. We need to lead the patients to the Savior as a source of power that will transform their lives. And we need to be like Josiah, not Balaam, who received the wages of those wages of rebellion. So here it is. I believe this place is filled with people that are assigned to God in his near coming. I believe that amen has been called for just such a time as this. That they have the opportunity to make that difference. And I call upon amen as an organization to help to remove the curse that came from generations before us. The worst of evil that has come upon the church of God. Because I acknowledge what I see where physicians and pastors are not working in unity. Where pastors are often intimidated by their physicians who carry too much power. And they wonder about their own, uh, whether whether these physicians are even committed to the gospel. And these physicians who, you know, hey, they're doing their own thing. They really don't care because they're busy. We can restore the church of God like Josiah. And receive the blessings of obedience like Josiah did. One way you can do this is you can have as many pastors in this room as there are physicians and dentists and nurse practitioners and master's degrees, etc. Amen is a medical ministry. And when you see equal connection between the two here, you can become a place where that becomes a, a, a catalyst to develop the combined ministry. How hard would it be to put together a website that says, hey, you know, if you're a physician interested in ministry and you're a, a minister in, invested in medical, medical work, you can get together here. And we can help you to do that. And you know what? Wayne Cablon and I, we write sermons together. We don't have to be in the same place. We get on Google Docs and talk on the phone. It works fantastic. So you see, physicians and pastors, they're a little awkward. They don't know how to get together sometimes. They don't even know about their roles. The physician doesn't know how to work with the pastor. The pastor doesn't know how to work with the physician. They feel awkward. It doesn't mean that it changes anything about the demand to do so. I'll tell you about the role of a physician and pastor. Physicians, are to, uh, physicians and pastors work this way. Pastors are to work with physicians, and physicians work with the pastor. The, past, the physician keeps the pastor practical in the work that the pastor does. And the, phys, and, and the pastor keeps the physician focused on the gospel. That's what we need. The Seventh-day Adventist church needs a champion for God. One who will, in obedience and sacrifice, help the people of God remove the curse, the worst of evils that has come upon our churches. And in this late hour of earth's history, the Lord is calling upon, I believe, the Lord is calling upon you as an organization, the members of Amen, to be that champion. To be that kind of radical person that goes kind of nuts. Because you're not afraid to die. To self, and because when you talk to people, you love them radically, even your ministry partners. I want to challenge a church with a model of radical practice that you can live, that you will lead the church not by authority but by influence, and that you will transform an influence that will transform your personal life, your practice, as well as your church. I believe you can do that. You have a track record for doing that, which is great. 
for carrying great influences in this church and in the community of physician believers. You have a purpose, and I believe that you have been brought into existence for just such a time as this, for you are a sign of the closeness of the coming of God. And as you work, God bless your loving, devoted obedience with radical transformation, not just of your practice, but of your very lives. May God help you do this. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we need you so bad. We are dust. But you, Lord, have given us great opportunity. We pray that you will change us in our hearts. Please receive our repentance. We weren't here, Lord, when that decision was made. But we can decide now what to do with it. We pray, Lord, that you will empower these people. Give them the strength that they need. And help them, Lord, to move forward in your your will. We pray in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.